0: Welcome to the Better Together podcast. Here you'll find inspiring and enlightening podcasts brought to you by our MDS-ARG pods. ARGs, associate resource groups, strive to explore, highlight, and share the wide breadth of experience of our BD colleagues, their families, and their communities. This podcast is brought to you by The Limitless ARG and focuses on the inspiring story of one individual rooted in terrifying circumstances
1: the guy came into my room basically said you're never going to walk again. It was a sentence worse than death.
0: But this is a story about strength, perseverance, and triumph.
1: And she said, Mark, you need to train like you're training for the Olympics. And your arms are going to become your legs. And I really took that to heart.
0: This is the two-part story of outdoorsman, mountaineer, and Paralympian Mark Wellman. For part one of this special journey with Mark, Here's Joe Balin.
2: Hello, welcome to the Better Together podcast. I am excited today to have a special guest, uh, Mark Wellman. He's an acclaimed author, filmmaker, motivational speaker, Paralympian, adventure athlete, pioneer, and overall good guy. How's that for an intro?
1: That's great, Joe. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Well, good to have you here. Uh, Before we get into it, um, this podcast is brought to us by our Limitless ARG um, whose goal is to to foster an inclusive, diverse culture focused on advancement of individual professional development goals, while leveraging the expertise and skill set of the Limitless team as allies and members. So, Mark, welcome to the Better Together podcast. Great
1: to be here, Joe. Thank you.
2: I uh, have the, I guess, the pleasure of living down the road from you, and uh, we're here in a very uh, harsh environment in Truckee, California, where we have. Currently, five feet of snow on the ground. And you said we might have seven more coming.
1: Seven more coming is what I heard. We'll see. And you love this lifestyle. I it? do. It's, uh, you know, it's it's beautiful up here. And uh, I love to ski and uh, shoveling snow and snow blowing is part of the
2: lifestyle. Well, for those, we are on a podcast, so people can't see you. So I want to describe when I first met mark or when you first meet mark the first thing you notice is that smile and that mustache that he has <laughs> the th- the second thing you notice are his arms are the size of uh pythons he looks like uh i think they're bigger than what hulk hogan measured back in the 80s 24 inch pythons. and then the third thing um mark you move around in a wheelchair
1: i do yeah i've been a wheelchair user for 40 years hard to believe
2: and so we'll get to why you're in a wheelchair but but before we do you know, we talked a little bit, you are a Paralympian adventure athlete, you are a Mountaineer by heart. And at an early age, you started mountaineering and tell us about, you know, how I, I think it was at 12 years old, you began or found this love for, for climbing and hiking up
1: things. I did, you know, uh, I had an uncle, uncle John was, a, like a second father to me. Um, my dad was, uh, a chef. And you know how many hours people in the, in the food industry spend. So he was always busy doing that. And my uncle who lived up in Wallala, California, which was kind of right on the coast, it's South, the South part of Mendocino coast. And, uh, he was, uh, he retired at 40 years old and he was a chemist at, at, uh, Kodak, uh, in Rochester, New York. And, uh, He used to take me on these, uh, 50 mile backpacking trips. And my first mountain I climbed was Mount Shasta and is really in Northern California. And it was a trail going up the top of the mountain, but it was 10,577 feet. And my uncle, myself, and my mom went up, uh, Mount Lassen when I was probably 10 years old. It was a long time ago. And, uh, that was kind of the beginning of getting into backpacking, climbing. And uh, when I was in high school, I met some friends who uh, Peter Ensminger, Patrick Tanner, they were all Eagle Scouts. And uh, we started doing peak bagging in the Sierra Nevada mountain range. And the Sierra is goes from the Tahoe, north of Tahoe, really, all the way down past Mount Whitney. And there's over many, many uh, 12, 13, 14,000 foot peaks along the crest of the Sierra Nevada. And we started doing lots of different uh, peak bagging and backpacking trips. I, I got
2: to stop you there. What's peak bagging for us who maybe
1: have only hiked up a hill? Uh, it, you know, we, we, we call it peak, peak bagging when, you know, you you pick out a mountain that you want to climb and you you make it to the summit. So peak bagging. Okay, And the American Alpine Club places these climbing registers on top of the mountain. Sometimes it's a pretty fancy little box. Other times it's almost like a a coffee can. And there's a cairn, so a pile of rocks, and then they have this uh, register. And you can open it up and and sign your name and see who's climbed the mountain over the years. And uh, it's just a another kind of bonus of, of climbing that peak, leaving your, your initials, your name there, maybe saying something. Gotcha. And so those who climb up can then see
2: who else has climbed and get whatever messages of inspiration or just even just notes that someone else made it up the top of the mountain. Exactly. Right.
1: Exactly. And they might tell you the route that they climbed, uh, the conditions, uh, you know, what the weather was like, you know, things like that, and uh, the year that you climbed it, of course, and the, and the season, what time of year you climbed, and uh, the American Alpine Club places a lot of those registers up on top of mountains.
2: So, you you mentioned you met a group of friends in high school. Um, you guys all fell in love with climbing. You started peak bagging and looking to to hike everywhere you could. Um, if we fast forward a little bit, um, you know, you you spent your early childhood high school years really fine-tuning and getting into climbing. You mentioned your friend Pete. Take us back to really uh, the timeframe, August 1982, you and Peter were hiking in, I believe it was the John Muir Wilderness correct? and um, in, in descending the Seven Gables. But before we get into the descending part of it, talk to us about
1: where you were, your hiking plans for the day. Well, yeah, we were we were out of high school. Peter was going to Georgetown University at the time. Um, and I was working at the ski hut in Palo Alto. It was a, a shop that um, sold alpine, Nordic ski equipment, river rafting, rock climbing equipment. And I was assistant manager there. And uh, it was in Palo Alto, downtown Palo Alto, California, where I grew up. And uh, Peter called me from Georgetown. I believe it was in the spring. He wasn't out of school yet. And he said, hey, I I really want to climb the Seven Gables. Would you like to join me on the climb? And We'd like to do it in August. And I said, sure, you know, let's uh, let's plan that trip. So when August came, we uh, made our way. We drove uh, through Yosemite on the Tioga Road down to 395 and went to Bishop, California, to a U.S. Forest Service ranger station, picked up our wilderness permit, and then we drove up to South Lake, uh, up above Bishop, and started the hike on a on actually a trail. And then uh, we probably hiked, oh, five or six, seven miles. I forget exactly how far we were on the trail. And then we got off trail and started hiking uh, off piece, you might say, uh, off a trail, kind of picking our way through. Uh, boulder fields and made our way up to an unknown lake and that when I say unknown it was it was unnamed lake and we set up a a base camp at that lake which was pretty close to the the climb of Seven Gables. So what is Seven Gables?
2: Describe it to us. What is what is the geographical makeup of the area? What is
1: it? Well, the yeah. seven Gables is is close to another famous mountain called Mount Humphreys. It's in the southern Sierra, and uh, I believe it was close to thirteen thousand feet. and uh, I forget the exact height of it. But it was on the crest. It was just a beautiful uh, mountain that kind of stands alone. It has these seven kind of gables, and it's just a beautiful mountain, and we want we we've seen it before on backpacking trips. So we made our ascent on Seven Gables, and we left the the base camp. Base camp is where we left our tents, our sleeping bags, most of our provisions. We grabbed some of our climbing equipment and made our ascent on the Seven Gables. And uh, there was an approach. It was we left uh, at dawn, and uh, we went up the Seven Gables on the east, kind of the eastern. East east side, I guess. And we started going up and the climb was good. It was going very well. We were, you know, making our way up. And by the time uh, we reached the summit, it was uh, about five o'clock. So So how
2: long? So about a 10 hour hike to to the
1: summit? Yeah, at least. And it was more than just a hike. And then, you know, once you started climbing, it was getting into class four mountaineering um describe what is that so we're using equipment or we we didn't have to use a lot of equipment on that climb because class four mountaineering is is scrambling on talus and boulders um we didn't have to do a lot of technical climbing um we did have to one pitch we used a rope and then uh by the time we we topped out like i said it was about five o'clock in the afternoon and we decided that we were going to go down the other side, which was less technical. It was not as steep, basically. So before we get into
2: the descent, so you you get up around five o'clock. You guys spend how long? Do you spend on the top of a mountain when you get to it oh, to
1: enjoy the you know the ten hours of work you just did. Exactly. Not in this case, not very long. Because it took a lot longer than we anticipated. Okay. You know that was that was kind of one of the problems was it it took longer than we thought, and I think we enjoyed the summit. We we signed a little. In, in this case, it wasn't a fancy register. It was a, a Folgers cotton can, <laughs> and we just poured out the little pieces of paper. And I noticed that my hero had climbed uh, Seven Gables Royal Robbins, and I actually put my name next to Royal Robbins, which is kind of cool. Royal had done a, a lot of uh, climbing in Yosemite Valley, uh, was the first uh, ascent of Half Dome with his wife. Um, he, he'd done all kinds of first ascents in Yosemite Valley and Royal and Liz had a, a clothing company called Royal Robbins. And uh, so it was great. And And I actually met him further down in my career. I never thought I'd meet the guy like I did but we can talk about that. So later. that's a little
2: foreshadowing. So you you open the can, put your name in there, and you saw Royal Robins in there. Exactly. So now it's time to to head on down. It's, it's you know, 5 o'clock. What time of year is it? Is it? It's, it's all- August. So,
1: you know, the sun is up until, you know, 830, you know. And so we had to make our way down. And we, we decided not to go down the way we came up. We were going to go down the other side and walk around the mountain to get to our base camp, because we thought that would be faster. And on the descent, I, we were probably, oh, maybe 500 feet from the summit when we were coming down. And, and I'll be the first to admit that my guard was down. Um, I was 22 at the time. I was uh, thinking about this great mountain house, freeze-dried food, Bound down at base camp. I was hungry. Yeah. And I just was, you know, my guard was down. And Peter later said that he was nervous coming down this way. And I, I wasn't nervous at all. I was just trying to get down this scree. Scree is a breakdown process of the mountain. It's like gravel. And the gravel was on top of this um, granite slab, which is like you can kind of imagine maybe marbles on the floor and how you, you know, you slip on marbles and you fall down on the ground. That's basically what happened to me. I slipped on this scree. I pitched forward and I started rolling. And next thing I knew, I was rolling down about 100 feet, uh, dropped several times. And when I came to a rest, luckily, I didn't continue rolling down the mountain. I stopped and uh, I was laying on ice and or kind of snow, ice snow mixture. And Peter set up a rope, rappelled down to where I was. And all of a sudden, we realized that we were in a world of hurt. We were way up on this mountain. We were 20 miles away from the vehicle. And it was starting, it was going to get dark soon. And Peter said he spent two hours with me. He stopped some bleeding. I had shorts on. And then the worst thing was I had this excruciating pain in my back. And uh, at that point, I could move my legs a little bit but we decided that obviously I wasn't coming down the mountain that night. So Peter left uh, another jacket with me, some food, an extra water bottle. Uh, I think he left without any water, without food. He left everything with me. And by the time he got down close to the base camp, he he actually got down off of the technical part of the climb, and he ran into some people, and they uh, lent him a headlamp. So he could uh, get back to the base camp and he got back to base camp. And actually we had hiked in with his brother and his sister-in-law who were not, they were backpackers. They were not climbers. So that night Peter and his brother, Jeff actually hiked out. And when the sun came up, they were starting to run. They got down to the vehicle. They left Jeff's wife up at the base camp. And then they drove the vehicle down to the Forest Service and down to Bishop, California. Well, let
2: me let me back up there because sure. I think if you look at I guess the time frame of this. So you started to descend around five thirty six o'clock, and you said it was about five hundred feet from where you were when you five hundred yards where you initially slipped and fell, and about five hundred feet.
1: Okay, you know it, it. So what time of night was that? We probably left at 5.15, and that was probably a half hour later. Okay, so
2: 5.45 that evening. So he still has to hike down, has to get to base camp, then get to the car. You said the sun's coming up by the time he's getting to the car.
1: Uh, Yeah, the sun came up earlier. He They were still hiking. So they had a 20-mile hike.
2: Okay, so I just want to paint the picture for everyone. You're lying here with a jacket, a little bit of food. Exactly. And this is now, I mean, we're, we fast forward a little bit, but you're like 15 hours later. By myself. By yourself in the mountains, not knowing if Peter got down, if if you're going to be okay. Oh, exactly. So what, walk us through like, I guess that time, like that, that 15 hours or so, and, and I know it's, it's even a longer period that you were
1: there, but. You know, what's going through your mind? Like, it was, it was, I was in a desperate situation. I mean, as soon as the sun went down, it got cold. And at 12,000 feet approximately at night, it gets, it can be freezing. And it was, it was freezing, it was cold. And uh, the really only uh, contact I had with humans, I guess, sort of, because I was hearing these jets flying over the the mountains, and I could hear the jets and thinking about these people in in the jets, eating food, being comfortable. And here I was laying down on this seven Gables ledge on the mountain, feeling like my life was slipping away from me literally. And uh, I kept hearing these jets all night long. And then uh, I was shivering, and it was cold. I mean, I didn't have a sleeping bag. That was down at the base camp. And they weren't going to bring a sleeping bag up to me. They, they made the right decision to, to hike out. And then, this was before cell phones, right, in 82. And, and even now, cell phones wouldn't really work in the, the Sierra Nevada crest. Right. Um, so as you're laying there, tell us about the
2: extent of your injuries or what you knew at that time or felt at that
1: time as you, you laid there. I didn't think I was paralyzed at that point. Um, I, I thought I was, you know, I, I knew I was hurt, but at 22 years old, you know, I, I hardly even knew what a wheelchair was. right? And I wasn't really, you know, you, you, know, if you look at, at people that have spinal cord injuries, uh, and, and when that accident happened, it was a, a T11, T12 fracture of my lower back. And, uh, I, I ended up breaking my back during that, that accident. And, uh, but at the time I didn't, I didn't even know, but, you know, obviously I knew what a wheelchair was, but you never think about that. But, but as you're stuff. lying there, you're not able to get up and
2: move and, and you're just in, in, you're in pain. Or you in I, not I rolled so? over.
1: I did. I rolled over and tried to get before, before dawn, it was probably four in, in the morning or five. It was really cold. I was shivering and I rolled over and tried to get in, get into a, a crawling position. And I had this shooting pain just ripped through my back. And I decided that wasn't the right thing to do and uh, went back into sort of a, a kind of a fetal position because it was so cold. I was sure. Yeah. So I'm in this fetal position, shivering. And uh, I remember finally the sun, because you're up on this mountain, the sun rays actually hit you pretty early in the morning. And soon as the first sun rays hit my, my body, I was like, ah, I'm finally going to warm up. And I did. And the sun came up and I got warm. Did you sleep at all that night that
2: no. you were, you,
1: just your mind wandering thinking and was Peter and his brother going to get out was, you know, I knew there was probably going to be a helicopter rescue involved, but yeah, how long was that going to be? And, uh, it turned out to be 24 hours later, I heard a, uh, a, a chopper coming up the, the canyon and you could hear the helicopter way before you could see it. I could hear this whoop 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 whop sound coming up the, the valley. What went through your mind when you
2: heard that? Oh, thing? I
1: was all of a sudden I was elated. Um, I figured I was going to get off this mountain and it turned out to be a ship from the U.S. Forest Service. Uh, they thought it was going to be a body recovery. So they flew a smaller helicopter up just to see what was going on up there and uh i could see the helicopter i could i I, i'm sure they saw me and all of a sudden the helicopter disappeared and 15 minutes went by half an hour 45 minutes and then uh, the second helicopter had a much louder pitch to it it turned out to be a ship from Lamore navy base uh they do technical rescues in the mountains for climbing. When that
2: when that first helicopter went away, did you sink back into oh I was devastated. despair or shock? Like I was devastated. That,
1: they didn't see me. They don't know I'm here. Right. I I I figured they saw me because they flew in pretty close, but um, I didn't know why they disappeared. I, I knew they couldn't land. Right. And I, I just didn't all of a sudden they were gone. And then it was probably about half an hour. Before the next one, the next one came in from Lamore Navy Base, and then and then to add to the whole excitement of this whole thing, um, thunder bumpers came in in, in late afternoon, and uh, it started hailing and raining. And just before it started raining, though, the helicopter flew in, and the pilot had to bring the rotors within several feet of the cliff surface. And they lowered a Navy medic on a cable with a Stokes litter a wire basket. And they actually dropped him off and then they flew away. And later I found out the reason why they flew away is in those days, they were using a a Huey helicopter, kind of a Vietnam style helicopter. And they they don't fly very well, 12, 13,000 feet. So the pilot went over the Owens Valley and dropped half his fuel load. And actually, the fuel dissipates before it hits the ground. But he wanted to lighten up the helicopter so he could get back in there. And it was a daring move. They, they thought that maybe the medic and I would have to spend another night up there. And uh, kind of a, an ironic situation is that they contacted YOSAR, Yosemite Search and Rescue. And my future climbing partner, Mike Corbett, was on YOSAR. And Yosar was on standby. They were going to bring another helicopter down to Yosemite, pick up some uh, uh, Yosar uh, climbers that were rescue climbers. And they were going to pick them up and fly them back up there, and maybe do a carry out because so, of the weather. So how long was it just you and the medic there? Uh, we were probably there about an hour and a half. And then the pilot decided that the clouds cleared a little bit, and he decided Yosar was on standby, but he decided to just go in and try to evacuate us.
2: Is there communication between the medic and the helicopter, or no? Uh, Or do you not recall? I don't, you know, I'm sure there was. I don't remember. Did you feel in that moment while the medic was there comfort? That you were gonna big live time. you were gonna
1: be okay big time because it changed the whole spectrum the whole the game was changed by having another human being there, yeah that was a medic and but he was young, he was a young guy, yeah, older than I was I was twenty two and he was probably late twenties so so they get
2: you out of there um so uh, the the helicopter comes back with in a he loaded really a
1: daring. It was a daring rescue because he had to bring the rotors within several feet of the cliff surface, and the medic had put me on a a, a backboard, and then by himself got me into this Stokes litter, laying down, and then they fly in, and when they fly in, they have this cable and uh, an attachment, and he was he he was on in a harness. And he was, had the Stokes litter in front of him. So they lifted him and myself and uh, the Stokes litter. He was outside of the litter, though. It's not like a, a Coast Guard litter that you can kind of, you can like, sit in. Right. This he's hanging, a, from he's hanging from the outside of the of the. Is
2: there, litter. and this may be a silly
1: question, I am, uh, you know, I'm
2: horrified of helicopters. But at that moment in time, is, there's no fear that you have for anything, being lifted up on this rope through the cliffs. Is there nothing, what's going through your mind there? Just, I am glad to be getting out of here. Exactly.
1: I I was glad to get out of there. I was alive. And uh, so where
2: where did they take you?
1: Well, what happened was since they dropped half their fuel load, um, they had to do an emergency landing in Kings Canyon National Park. And they had an LZ, a landing zone. So they had an LZ. They landed that helicopter. And there was a CHP, California Highway Patrol Helicopter, waiting there. They transferred me out of that Huey helicopter from Lamore Navy Base into a CHP helicopter. And they flew me down to Valley Medical Hospital in Fresno, California. And it's a different name now. But uh, they landed. I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a trauma center in Fresno. So they landed there and then they brought me in and there was news cameras there because later I saw footage of them gurneying me out of the helicopter into the ER and they started cutting my clothes off. And the first question, one of the uh, emergency nurses said, who's your insurance company? And at the time I go, man, I, I, I know I have insurance. I forget the name of this company. And a lady goes, I go, I think it started with a K and she goes Kaiser. And I go, yeah, that's it. Kaiser. And, uh, I was in that hospital, well, that night they put me in a, on a striker frame. It's a, a, a rotating kind of bed that you go from laying upright to they turn you upside down prone. Yeah. prone exactly. Yeah. So they, they, they had me on a striker frame for a day and a half, I believe. And then they went in and did a, a an operation to stabilize my back. In those days, with Harrington rods, so they fused me from my my accident was T eleven, T twelve incomplete, and they fused me from L uh, L five to like um, T six. So I'm pretty fused up. I mean, nowadays they don't. So how how long ride. are you, how long are you in Fresno? two weeks two weeks two weeks
2: at at any point or what point did you know you would be in a wheelchair
1: well at that point the surgeons were saying wow you're incomplete you know you may get a lot of return so I, i was really pretty uh excited about that and then they uh they put me on an air ambulance and flew me down to redwood city kaiser And I was on the the sixth floor of the neurological center and I had my own room. I remember this doctor, Dr. Smiley, was a doctor, doctor from Stanford. Well, he he did his, he 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 became a doctor through the Stanford Medical School, but he was an orthopedic surgeon. And the guy came into my room, basically said, you're never gonna walk again. And I just like it just threw me for a huge, huge bummer. Yeah. And I started crying. I was like, to me, you know, being in a, using a wheelchair for the rest of my life was a, it was a sentence worse than death. And at, at the time I was thinking, God, I just wish the mountain would have taken me. I, I don't want to, you know, be a wheelchair user, you know, and, and I was on the sixth floor and I remember if I could have gotten out of bed, I, I was really getting depressed. And if I could have gotten out of bed, I mean, i was i was I was comp- con- contemplating suicide. I would have jumped out of the window and ended it. The mountain didn't take me, so maybe this six story building would have taken me. But
2: well, to give people perspective too, um your your life up until that point, you had been focused in the mountains and being out in nature and, and right. climbing and hiking and Kayak. Being an, event, an adventure athlete, and so the loss of the use of your legs oh. is, is a huge impact to that, or potentially, as we'll see, but it's it's something that I can see why you would get in that depression. So, so you're in that state of mind. How do you get out of that state of mind?
1: Well, fortunately, there was a, a guy next door to me in the, the room next door to me, and his name was Mark Sutherland. And Mark had was a quadriplegic. So he broke his neck 10 years prior. And Mark, uh, it was a classic accident. He was on a houseboat and um, in the Delta, of California Delta near Sacramento. And the tide had gone out. So they were diving off of this houseboat into deeper water. The next morning, the tide was shallow and he didn't realize that he was diving into three feet of water stove dove into three feet of water and broke his neck, right? Classic kind of accident. And Mark was an incomplete quadriplegic. He was, he could use a manual wheelchair. Um, you know, it wasn't a power chair. He used a manual chair. So he, he got around like a, like a paraplegic, except his hands, he didn't have the full dexterity in his hands and his arms. But all of a sudden he was starting to lose some mobility in one of his arms. One of his arms was becoming weaker and there turned out to be a bone spur that was touching his spinal cord. So he was in the hospital next to me for this surgery for, to remove this bone spur to regain back some of his, his uh, mobility. Right, And uh, I would, I'd wheel into his room because at, at that point he just had surgery. So he was bedridden for a few days. And I, I had this old wheelchair that was an old E and J, you know, your typical chair that probably weighed fifty pounds. It was really, you know, a, a kind of a, a sterile medical device. And Mark had a. This was kind of the beginning of the the revolution of of sports wheelchairs. And Mark had a, a much lighter chair that was cut down back. And I would transfer into his chair and wheel around in the, in the hospital in that chair going, well, this is way better than what I was sitting in. And Mark and I would talk and, and he would just, uh, you know, tell me about his life and that, you know, he'd done a lot of things. He would tell me stories like he had a milk truck that he converted and put hand controls on this milk truck. And one time he was driving it and he had a stool and the stool wasn't attached to the floor. It was just sitting in there. And one time he had to stop really quick and he fell off the stool and he had to, he was laying on the, on the, on the ground of the, of the floor of this milk truck. And he had to use his arm to slam down on the brake so he wouldn't hit something. So, so he, so you were in this this state of
2: depression, you, you meet this gentleman and you start hearing like he's
1: had success and been happy and yeah. lived his life. He had girlfriends at the time he was married. I think he had one or the other. Hopefully he didn't have both. But but <laughs> who knows? Right. But so this guy was, you know, he was living life. Yeah. And I was like, I was thinking, well, maybe this isn't such a bad a situation maybe I'm I can in. Do this. Maybe I can do this. And I realized too that he was broke his neck and I had full function of my upper body. Right. So both of us then we left and they moved us over to Kaiser Vallejo which is Kaiser's premier rehabilitation center. And they specialize in something called PNF. And they get stroke patients walking again. It's this really intensive physical therapy. And there was four of us in a hospital room. There was Mark Sutherland, myself, and two other guys. Chris DeFazio was another quadriplegic that was in the room. So they put all four of us in... Uh, a room at Kaiser Vallejo. And that's kind of where our physical rehabilitation started. So how long were you
2: in that in Vallejo then? So you went from Redwood City over to Vallejo for your physical
1: rehabilitation. So the whole hospitalization back in those days was my hospitalization seven months, seven months. And nowadays, somebody that's a paraplegic might be in the hospital for two to three, four weeks. So I want to fast forward a little bit here. So um,
2: you go through rehabilitation. I do know there's a story too of a nurse who was there that really inspired you. So I want to I want to talk about that. What she said to you that kind of helped change your way of thinking in terms of your arms or now your legs. Um, I believe it was a Kaiser Vallejo nurse.
1: It was actually a PT, okay, physical therapist. So fortunately, and and I had a there was a there was a a, a day nurse there, Forest. Who was a Vietnam vet, and I remember when they first brought me out of the ambulance and brought me into the room. All of a sudden, Forrest sat in a wheelchair and popped the wheelchair into a wheelie, and I was like blown away how this guy <laughs> could like balance on two on in a wheelie in a wheelchair. This able-bodied guy. right? And then so he he took care of me. He he was he wasn't an R.N. I think he was a, a nurse's assistant. Yeah, and. Um, but he took care of us. And then, uh, then we started going into PT. They would, we would wheel down to the gym and we would uh, do these isometric stretching and they'd work on our legs and put long leg braces on us and and get us up in the parallel bars and ice baths and all different sorts of different technologies that in those days, I mean, it, it was intensive, physical therapy. And it was a teaching facility. They brought in a lot of uh, PTs from around the world to learn this new technique of PNF, which Maggie Knott brought into Kaiser Vallejo, uh, along with uh, a guy named Bert, who was a, an assistant PT. And they were pushing.
2: Well, I, 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 I got to interrupt for a second because your ability to recall names is unbelievable. I meet someone for the first time and I, their name just flies through my head, but you, you remember first names, last names, every descriptive detail. It's quite amazing. Um, so, so what, tell me about, you remember the, the quote, I think you had told me before about the person who, who said to you that you now need to use your arms as, as if they were your legs.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was a a physical therapist And uh, she was from Germany and it was Sabina and Sabina actually lives here in Truckee. She has a, a practice here in Truckee. She's about ready to retire, but Sabina was from Germany. I was 22 at the time. She was probably 26. And she said, Mark, you need to train like you're training for the Olympics and your arms are going to become your legs. And I really took that to heart and all the people that I've mentioned, Bert, all those different physical therapists, Chuck Hansen, Dutch. I've remained uh, in contact with these people 40 years later because they, you know, I attribute my success to my experience through the Kaiser system. I mean, a lot of people complain about Kaiser and this and that, but I really attribute my success in life now to that really good rehabilitation experience that I had. I learned how to take care of myself. I've only been in the hospital twice in 40 years. And that's kind of unheard of for a paraplegic. And uh so I've been very fortunate that, you know, they taught me about skin care and bowel and bladder issues and all the kinds of stuff that you have to deal with as a as a spinal cord injury person. If you don't take care of yourself, you're going to die.
0: Thanks for listening to part one of this two-part episode with Mark Wellman from the Limitless ARG. For more information about this ARG, feel free to reach out to Joe Balin directly and be on the lookout for part two of this podcast. This podcast has been a production of BD. BD and the BD logo are trademarks of Beckton Dickinson & Company or its affiliates. Copyright 2023 BD. All rights reserved.